Bone Knowing, a true story of coming to life in the face of impending loss. Chapter 18, Surrender, September 1997. Time is closing in. The pressure in my pelvis is unbearable, and I'm sure this baby will crack me open at any moment. Just after midnight on September 11th, two weeks after Tom returned from Mexico, five days since my leave from work, one day since Allison arrived from Maine to help, and two weeks early, a hot tsunami rushes out of me and onto our warm bed. At first I'm confused. Even though I've had contractions for four days, it doesn't sink in that the baby is coming. Now. As I'm changing into dry clothes and stuffing a hand towel down my pants, my insides contort and I double over. Tom, wake up! The baby's coming! He blinks, orienting himself as he moves about the room faster than he has in almost a year. When the contraction lets up, I grab the bag I had packed a week ago. Allie, it's time! Things are happening fast! I shout, rapping on Allison's door. Tom gathers River out of sleep, and Allison carries his droopy little body to the car. Did you call Eliza and tell her to call the others? I ask Tom. He nods. Did you tell her we couldn't wait for a ride? Yes, Jen. It's taken care of, he says. Allison gets behind the wheel, and Tom navigates from a barely conscious state. The hospital is twenty minutes away, that's if the car doesn't pull one of its stalling fits. From the back seat, I groan low and deep. I focus on River's face, lost in dreamy slumber, trying to remember the precious reward that will come out of this pain. The car sputters. Press the gas pedal down hard two times, come on, two times, it'll catch. I shriek urgently amidst the clenching in my pelvis. Tom and Allison murmur words back and forth. Okay, nothing I can do. They have it under control. Trust the rope. The old rock climbing mantra resurfaces, allowing me to drop into my body and ride the currents of birth. It's surely the longest 20 minute drive of my life to date, but we do make it without a breakdown. And that's something I tell myself. At this point, I'll take any shred of evidence that things are going to be okay. The aide has seen too much gore to appreciate how much I need a bed right now. Nonchalantly, he wheels over two chairs while I breathe quick bursts of, Hurry! 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 Deja vu of the airport a couple months ago. Only this time there's no mistaking that Tom needs a chair as well. He ignores his chair and gets behind mine, pushing slowly, painstakingly so. None of us. Not even me, desperate to get horizontal, messes with his mission. By the time I have my clothes off, one midwife, two doulas, and three sisters present, I'm fully dilated and keeping my focus. I'm figuring this baby will be out and in my arms in 30 minutes tops. I can do this. 30 long, definitely the longest minutes of intense pushing and bursting blood vessels pass. Eons later, it's an hour, and at least a lifetime later, it's two hours. Nothing. 
At three hours and at least five position changes later, my focus has melted into a swamp of desperation. I can't do this anymore, I begin sobbing, completely losing the breathing rhythm I've been clinging to up to this point. Get this baby out of me! Help! Please, somebody help! Any physical limits I've known up to this point, childbirth, bike accidents, marathons, judo matches, all of them have been busted through, pushing me to unknown territories of pain. Becky tells me I'm too far along to intervene with medication. Please, please, I can't. Tom lifts himself up from the bed beside mine, places a hand coolly on my back, and whispers as loud as he can, Jen, you can do this. Having him here, urging me on when he's barely in body, renews me temporarily. It can't be passed over as if there will be other opportunities in our marriage to give me this. Looking at him, I know it's true for him, too. The only way out of the pain is through it. I'm riding a wave of surrender when Becky insists on checking me. We need to find out what's happening. The baby's heartbeat is fine, don't worry, she reassures. But she looks worried. Her fingers prod into the vortex of pain. I gasp. Mm-hmm. She nods at one of the duelers and then looks up at me. You've got one big baby who wants to come out sunny side up. It's too late to reposition. She talks me off the bed for a try at squatting over the toilet when the last thing I can imagine doing is moving. I make it there, knives stabbing in a belt of pain around my hips. Still nothing. I just want this to be over. I just can't. I moan, head in my hands. Jennifer, Becky says, squatting down, her face in mine. We need a doctor. Things aren't progressing. We can try vacuum extraction first. The baby's head is right there. Or we can go straight to C-section. C-section sounds good. Anything to stop this pain, I think. Until I flash on Tom's theory on C-sections. I can't do it. Okay, va vacuum, hurry. I can't take this anymore. She phones the doctor on call and reverses instructions, telling me to ignore the huge current surging through me. As I try to hold back, I begin to worry that in some other realm, both the baby and I resist the passing of life's baton. It's causing both of us great suffering. This birth means moving on. As irrational as it might be, I don't want this child or me to ever feel responsible for Tom's death. Inside, I begin talking to my baby. You are your daddy's parting gift, and your timing is perfect. He knows you'll keep me wrapped up in living. My body goes with the words, surrendering again to what is to come. Bear-like growls vibrate through me as I let the constricting pressure turn me inside out. Amy and Allison press deeply into my palms and foot arches, altering the pain pathways. In the periphery, Joy steps away with an aching expression. In August, she miscarried at four months. I recognize her pain. 
In a space between contractions, I flash back to almost exactly a year ago when I witnessed Dakota's birth after losing my own pregnancy. As I watched her purple head crowned from Julie's body, I remember yearning for the pain, this very same pain, just to bring forth what should have been. I'm sorry, Joyce, I think. And then I shift all attention to the baby who has made it this far, alive. God, we are so lucky. Dr. Diaz arrives, says a few words, rigs up a contraption between my legs, and flips the switch. Jesus! I scream as he extracts the baby's head and leaves it there, waiting for the next contraction to dislodge the remainder of its body from its tenacious grip on my pubic bone. Bright lights warm the inside of my thighs, mixing a hint of pleasure among the overwhelming pain. In the shadows, I can see a crowd of faces in awe watching a life before it breathe air. Jessica, Eliza, and her boyfriend Devin bring River in from the lobby to witness the grand finale. The wave crests as Dr. Diaz pulls and I surrender to the ripping of my most tender flesh around the shoulders of our second child. With one last scream to my good brother Jesus, it's out a plump, juicy, blood-stained baby with a head thick of black curls bubbled to an oblong shape from the suction. A girl, Oceana Hope. River was right. Her eyes pinch tightly as her mouth stretches wide with a rebel screech. You did it, Jen, Tom says, leaning in to kiss my ear. Dr. Diaz holds her up for all to see shooing away the nurses who insist the newborn be taken to the nursery for observation. She stays, he says, placing her on my chest and tucking us in with a warm blanket. Thank you, I nod appreciatively, never taking my eyes away from our daughter. Her skin and my tears are hot and comforting. Tom steadies himself and gives River a boost onto the bed. Hi, sister. River says, poking at her to see if she's real. See my baby? He asks, pushing his new doll in her face. Oh, what a nice baby, River. I whisper, intercepting the plastic arm before it takes out an eye. Snuggling him in under an arm, we gaze at our new family member together. Oceana strains to look around, as if she has already sensed something is missing. Mama, check. Big brother, check. Lots of extended family, check. Daddy? Daddy, where are you? The handoff is a success, and Tom's presence wanes almost the instant our daughter takes her first breath. Over the next half hour, the rising sun sends gold lasers across the room, illuminating the exhausted faces of those who have rode out the night with me. It's time for rest. Allison scoops up River and catches a ride back to the house with Joyce and Amy. Tom hugs his girls and Devon, thanking them for their support. He'll stay for some time alone with the baby and me, promising he'll be okay to drive himself home later. I'm too exhausted to argue or make ride arrangements. We sleep, Tom in his hospital bed and me in mine, 
with Oceana grunting in satisfaction as she nurses. At noon, he gets up to leave, taking the brief window of energy while it lasts. Rest, he says, kissing the top of my head. I watch him hold the railing as he shuffles down the corridor. He's on his own, and so am I. Well, except for the aides who bring endless streams of cranberry juice and nurses who help tend Oceana, while I hobble to the restroom to check the damage. My motto is changing quickly. If insurance pays, I stay. The hospital buys me time to indulge in the instinctual desire of staring into my daughter's eyes as she nurses, before I return to my gig as caregiver. The cable TV won't go unused either. Oceana sleeps for a few hours, nestled into the crook of my armpit, while I get lost surfing channels with a remote. A post-childbirth high kicks in and I am on vacation. Everything feels normal and I'm convinced my husband will come to visit later with our son trailing an It's a Girl balloon behind them. They'd be just in time to share in the celebration dinner reserved for those who bring in new life. A young guy, maybe 25 tops, enters my room late into the afternoon. He's dressed to the nines. His skin is tan against his crisp white collar, like Tom's used to be. He smiles wide. What can I bring the parents of this lovely baby for dinner? It's obvious he loves his job. I click off the TV and with it the fantasy. Salmon for one, please, I answer. Oh, you've got to get your husband or your mom or someone in here. It's a great spread. Champagne and everything, he says. This guy reminds me of that young flight attendant at the airport well-meaning but not yet comprehending that life doesn't always come in neatly wrapped packages. You don't understand. I stop before I start crying or launch into the drama that is my life. Just one, I insist dully. If I were better at asking for help and hadn't already kept up all the likely candidates all night, I'd have called somebody. An hour later, the elegant meal arrives, set up with real linens, a candle, and fancy dinnerware, set for two. That's it, no escaping reality. I pick up my substantial little bundle, place her in the bassinet, and limp over to the table. Sitting down carefully, I look across through the candlelight to what should have been Tom. Instead, there is an empty chair framed by the muted flesh tone of the wall color. Champagne is a Colin. As I contemplate the bottle, regret for announcing my emotional vulnerability with a thorough birth plan posted on the door, which included our situation, enters my mind. Would they think I had a problem and deem me an unfit mother? Would they send a social worker up to chat with me? Halfway through the second glass, I don't care what the hell anyone thinks. I fill the aching void with most of the remaining champagne. Two Caesar salads, two salmon fillets, two scalloped potatoes, and two slices of lemon cheesecake. Satiated and buzzed, I return to the bed and sink into a joy-laced sadness. My body quakes as I wail into the pillow. Unfamiliar sounds boil up from deep within. Sweet liberation fills me, 
while my defenses are preoccupied, spinning circles around the room. Somewhere along the way, I fall into a dense, timeless sleep. Dreams fly through me like commercials, one after the other. Far away, I hear a howling. It grows louder, penetrating the dream world. Only it doesn't match the images. Baby! With my eyes still closed, I push my body toward the sound before it's ready, and I fall back onto the bed, my head throbbing and piercing pain darting about my entire pelvis. I'm here, sweetie. I'm coming, Oceana. I repeat as I edge over to the bassinet. Cradling her, I meet her rooting with a warm breast, only she doesn't settle long enough to take it in. I turn the light on to orient. Her tongue sits like a communion wafer suspended purely by sound waves in the center of her gaping mouth as she shrieks. Nothing consoles her. This little soul has felt my grief all along. To top it off, I checked out just as she checked in. Suddenly I understand Tom's attempt to ease his pain after River's birth, though my grief has different origins. I've already jumped ahead to witnessing our daughter's milestones alone and having her know her daddy only through pictures and stories. The next morning, I feel nauseous and cloudy. Despite the discomfort, I decide food and beverage hangovers are a good thing. The comfort they gave me last night scares me. Things are complicated enough without returning to the addictions I'm already primed for. Allison comes to pick me up. Reluctantly, I check out of the Ritz, bracing myself for how this will all work now that I can barely walk without busting my stitches. Home again, home again, jiggity jig. I sing the ditty I always sing, River, when we arrive home, only now the tone is tentative and sarcastic. It isn't anybody's fault, it just is. Allison looks over at me with an empathetic smile frown. The expression makes her look even more like our mom. She and Joyce both have mom's warm brown eyes, and it's as if they got the look of compassion with the eye color gene. Allison unlatches Oceana from the baby carrier and coos to her. Though she is younger than me, she is an experienced mother with two school-age sons. I'm comforted having her here. She's the buffer I need while I adjust to a new routine and let go of all things I can't control. A prayer of surrender spreads across my chest as I turn the doorknob. The house is quiet except for tiny voices from the television upstairs. Three papers are taped to the fridge. Tom's treatment schedule, a calendar of the week with the names already filled in to help, and a do-not-resuscitate order. The irony, I think. We ask for loads of help to keep the clock ticking for him, and yet, if death comes knocking, Tom doesn't want anyone to stop it. He seems obliged to give life his maximum effort so nobody, he included, could mistake his surrender for giving up. Mostly for Tom, I'm glad I birthed this baby vaginally. He needed to witness this rite of passage and all of its difficulty, and he needed to know that this child would have a strong will. Having been a C-section baby himself, he was sure it was the culprit behind his struggle with willpower. He really believed the easy way in robbed him of the instincts to rise up in hard times. 
Finally, as I scan over the contradicting papers, I comprehend. Choosing treatments requiring so much discipline was partly an effort to cultivate what he thought he was lacking. It looks like death is giving him the opportunity he believes he missed out at at birth. No easy out. Allison runs up and down the stairs for a week straight, tending to all of us like a live-in mama. When she leaves, her goodbye to Tom is clean, having already made closure back in Maine. It's Oceana who is having a hard time. Colic, grief, whatever it is, it has possessed our baby girl and has her screeching for hours each night. By day, she sleeps with a strawberry pout facing her daddy, the two of them off somewhere together in peaceful slumber. Come the bewitching hour of four o'clock, she transforms into angst baby. Tom doesn't seem to hear her howls. He just looks at her and smiles while I come out of my skin. By the tenth night of this routine, I'm well out of my skin from exhaustion. If I thought it was safe to leave Tom and River alone, I'd go out for a walk with her. She loves the cool air and I need the freedom. It isn't an option anymore. So I open a window and hold her while I bounce on the gymnastics ball until my thighs burn. Nothing helps. The louder she shrieks, the more helpless I'm rendered. Shut up! I scream to the ceiling. I can't do this for one more frickin' minute! I'm counting on my words being obliterated by her chalkboard scraping screeches until I see Tom grimacing in the blue light of the television. I lay our flailing daughter in her crib and go to him. His voice is too weak, outweighed by the mega decibels coming from the crib. Just then, I spot River in the doorway, rubbing his eyes and carrying his nana by the ear. All too often he has been last, despite being the easiest to help. A nightmare? Oh, my sweet boy. And you want nurseys? At last, redemption for all I'm helpless with. As I lay with River until sleep overtakes him, and I can pry his little suction cup mouth off my deflated breast, I slip into fantasies of a post-Tom future. I imagine getting a double stroller and bringing the kids for walks to the park every day, my body slowly retrieving an athletic form. I'd rent out Tom's garage office as a bedroom and trade for childcare so I could keep my job. I'd go out once in a while, catch up with old friendships I haven't had time to feed in ages, maybe even a date. A groan from the other room interrupts my flight. Whoa, I drag myself out of River's big boy bed and out of a time that does not exist yet and go to my man. Oceana is sleeping quietly now that it's after the blessed hour of eleven. I'm sorry, Button. I must have dozed off. What do you need? I ask. I'll give you anything. Another fentanyl patch, water, a little love, huh? It's so hard to love you when I'm going out of my skin mad. I'm sorry, Tom. I don't know how to do this, I think. He's restless, but asleep. A few days later, I'm kneeling down in the kitchen, packing the vegetable press under the sink, and thinking how nice it would be to box this stuff up and store it away, when a hand on my back startles me. I turn and meet Tom's knees. 
Jesus, you scared me. The last thing I expect is for him to be upright and downstairs. Neither has happened since the baby came over two weeks ago. His emaciated face beams down at me. My goodness, look at you, I exclaim, trying to tweak my expression of shock into one of delighted surprise. It's a good day, a really good day, he says, sitting down at the kitchen table. There's some heft to his voice. You won't believe this, Jen. I think I've turned a corner. Something feels different. If I could just keep up a year or two of impeccable treatment, I bet I could beat this thing. Really? I think the month at the clinic gave me the upper hand. He looks to me for cheerleading. Too late, though. I retired my pom-poms a while back when it looked like he wasn't going to get better. I traded them in for candles, believing the attitude of hallowed light would be more helpful as he moved into dying. Even he had agreed it was too difficult to be around people who couldn't accept his impending death. Busying myself with dishes, I keep a back to him. Hmm, wouldn't that be something, I say, straining for zeal. Meanwhile, thoughts pound away on the inside of my skull. Look, I thought we had established that you were dying from this cancer. You know I'll never leave you, and I can't do this for two more years. I simply can't. These are the kind of things that I fear will slip out into words any day now. With full force, I push them back again and search for the pom-poms like a good wife and caregiver. Betrayal weighs thickly on my enthusiasm. Just when I get past your 20-year promise, you decide it's back on, I think. Even I can't believe I'm actually angry with him for getting better. For so long, it had been my prayer to the Daddy God. I let the prayer go along with the disillusionment. Guess I'm jaded. He stands by his convictions without even a flinch. I step back and try to see the scene from my hospice social worker perspective. Oh, yes, I've seen this before. The Lazarus Syndrome. Patients just hop up off their deathbeds with a burst of energy before the final crash. It really messes with everyone, including the patient. Even when they're told to expect a second win before the final decline, they still believe they've won the battle and the bargaining with God has paid off. It just goes to show the power of a good day in a string of suffering. I check the tiny scribbling on the pink sticky note I keep on the fridge to remind myself what medicine I gave him. Hmm. A fresh fentanyl patch at 2 a.m. Usually he'd be a little disoriented following a new patch, but this doesn't look like the usual. He's oriented, all right, to living. River pads down the stairs, full of sleep, rubbing his eyes as if to be sure it isn't a mirage he's seeing. Daddy! Clearly, he hasn't retired his pom-poms. Read me the funnies! Though it's been a while, River doesn't forget their couch position. They cozy together behind the paper and go about bringing back a ritual I thought was long gone. Man, oh man, Rio, Daddy's doing good today, Tom says, folding up the paper. Let's go to Mal's for cinnamon roll, and I'll push you in the chair. Sunday, Monday, every day is cinnamon roll day. His eyelids rise higher than they have in a month, 
It's sweet, and yet I want to warn Tom not to bring our little boy on yet another swoop of this roller coaster. They'll both have to lose all over again. We have shifted our language with River from sick to might die to going to die. Back when Tom had his near-death experience in Mexico, I started preparing River, telling him that Daddy might not come back. When Tom did return, River looked confused only for a fraction of a second before he leaped onto Tom's legs. At almost three, River treats each day as its own entity, making it obvious the worries I have are my own. In the evening when Oceana begins her colic, Tom rocks her and hums softly, immune to her shrill cries. His second wind lasts into another day, and he grinds his own juice and packs a picnic for us all to go to the park together. Old hope shows up, and I start to fall in with him. Okay, then, live. But only if you can take part in this family. And no tricks, huh? It would be good to have my co-parent and adventure buddy back again. Just as I dare to consider believing in miracle outcomes, I remind myself about the Lazarus thing. I can't afford the disappointment when he crashes, so I back off, urging him to use his energy to make audio tapes or write letters to each of his four children. They could open them on their future birthdays, I suggest. It becomes clear to him that I'm not on board. Why use a dose of life on the business of death? he retorts. Hmm. So he does know this is a dose and not a full meal deal, I think. Because you can't do it when you're feeling like shit, I answer. I'll get to it. I actually have an idea of putting my short stories together and binding them, one for each of the kids. I can work on that over the weekend. Right now, I've got a little boy who wants to hear a story, he says, patting the couch for River to come sit with him. For the hundredth, maybe thousandth time on this eight-year-plus journey, I have to release all expectations and accept that he will do what he thinks is best. It's too risky to start an argument with him when he could be gone at any time, so I try and bring to mind all that he has done. I soften to his ways, remembering the beautiful letters he has written to his grown daughters on each birthday since his cancer diagnosis, the trips he has taken them on to introduce them to the world, the lullaby he wrote for River and sang to him every night when he was a baby, and all the trinkets he has stashed away for his son when he's older. Oceana is his final gift, and seeing her in will have to be enough. Using time to be with them is his best offering. The book of short stories doesn't happen. His body crashes hard on the third day, and his hope collides with fate. I'm guilty of being the naysayer, not willing to take the last ride. Flip side is that my steadiness makes it possible to catch him. I really thought, just maybe, he whispers, lying in bed, staring into space. I know... I say, kissing his forehead. You know you've made the best of what you were given, Tom. That's all you can do on this ride. My heart bursts wide open for him, while for me it maintains an arm's length. We continue with the treatment protocol, 
though it seems empty, as if out of obligation to those who still believe he'll recover. Talking becomes difficult again, and Tom holds his language to present tense. He coasts along without gravity, in limbo, and ripe for another layer of surrender. This has been read to you by the author, Jennifer Allen. Copyright 2009.